Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's Thursday, May 4th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And today is the day of justice on the gist. All justice all day as the Proud Boys goeth before the jury and get taken down seditious conspiracy convictions for Enrique Terrio, the Proud Boys chairman, a man among boys, you might say, and also Ethan Nordine, Joseph Biggs, and Zachary Rell, Proud Boy leaders, all convicted of seditious conspiracy. Dominic Pizzola was not found guilty of that, the most serious charge. He wasn't a Proud Boy leader. He's just a guy who created much of the insurrection on January 6th by grabbing a police riot shield and breaking open a window. He was convicted on counts related to those specific actions. That is apparently how white men fight. Sorry, just thinking out loud there for a second, which brings us to justice for Ed Sheeran, the singer-songwriter, genius, voted most unlikely fully tattooed gentleman in England, does not have to give it up to the estate of Marvin Gaye. Thank God the Ed Sheeran song in question, thinking out loud, was the wedding song of the COO of Peachfish Productions. The whole office had a lot riding on that verdict. And in New York City, a question of justice hangs over the events of a subway homicide. I shall address that in the spiel. But in D.C., the question of justice is Thomas, Clarence Thomas, ProPublica reporting that he had a child in boarding school and that child's tuition was paid by Harlan Crow. The wealthy donor, yes, he had a child. The child was a grand nephew. And Clarence Thomas, much like he's accepted gifts from Harlan Crow that include travel and just flat out subsidies for his mother's housing, also accepted tuition from the mega donor. Now, I do have to say that in 1981, a Washington developer forgave $120,000 in loans and gave $20,000 in cash to Justice William J. Brennan, the leading liberal lion of that Supreme Court. That was according to the financial disclosure forms, 80000 of that amount of money uh, came while Brennan was still on the bench. And the only reason I mention this is not to say, oh, they did it too. It's to say and to underline that it wasn't disallowed. It's still not disallowed. Rich people can give Supreme Court justices lots of money for lots of reasons. At the time, Justice Brennan said the gifts, quote, reflected only the affection and generosity of a dear friend. Mr. Smith, Charles Smith, the man who forgave Brennan's mortgage, has stated that he made these gifts in recognition of my public service. By the way, the amount that he was given then is worth roughly half a million dollars in 2023 dollars, a lot more than Clarence Thomas was said to have received. But the point is, if it's not against the rule, you can't really call it corruption. You might call it a kind of moral corruption, but getting a spot on a private plane, eh, 
Now, your mom receiving tens of thousands of dollars in services, yeah, that's, that's kind of morally corrupt, certainly seems so. Your grandnephew, who you essentially rescued from a parent with drug issues and criminal entanglements, allowing someone to pay his tuition, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of a tough call. If I were the justice, I wouldn't take it. But is it ethical or unethical? It's ethical towards the life of this boy. It may give the, certainly does give the appearance of impropriety publicly, but Clarence Thomas clearly didn't change his rulings to be something other than the staunch originalist he's always been, for better or worse. Worse, I'm going with worse. But again, if there are no rules against corruption, it's not corruption. So on this Justice Day on the Gist, we turn to the Senate Judiciary Committee Here, the leading senator seeking reforms for how Supreme Court justices define corruption is Sheldon Whitehouse. He has authored the Supreme Court Ethics Recusal and Transparency Act so they don't skirt the acronym, their commitments any longer. Here's Senator Whitehouse. Three things are needed to fix all this. Better enforcement, better recusal rules, and better disclosures. My bill would do all three. I thank Chairman Durbin for this joint hearing and look forward to getting to the bottom of this mess. Until there is an honest ethics process at the Supreme Court, these messes will continue. The court has conclusively proven that it cannot police itself. Nemo judex in sua causa. Senator Whitehouse ending with the Latin phrase meaning your house is full of talking Jewish clownfish. No, actually, Nemo Judex Sua Casa is no one is judge in his own cause. It's a principle meaning you can't allow anyone to be the judge over themselves, even judges, especially, as Whitehouse is saying, the justices. On the show today, as I promised, we're going to go to the New York City subway and a horrific death and what politicians are saying about it. But first, the early days of viral news media included Gawker, later dissolved, but brought back by former employees, BuzzFeed News, now shut down, the Huffington Post, HuffPo, they call it HuffPo, giving us an inside look at the beginning of those sites and how the internet raised the status of Steve Bannon and Andrew Breitbart is Ben Smith, formerly BuzzFeed News' editor-in-chief and now author of the book Traffic, Ben Smith up next. When your legs don't work like they used to before And I can't sweep you off of your feet Will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? Darling, I will be loving you I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect. 
via your passions in life, it is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Ben Smith uh, didn't start the internet, but he was there when the internet that we know started. Ben is now in charge of the new venture, Semaphore, which is once again redefining the internet. But he was there in the early aughts in the era of Gawker and his site, BuzzFeed. And it's all recounted in a new memoir called Traffic, Genius Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ben, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks for having me, Mike. So I do think that If Shakespeare hadn't written those plays, those plays wouldn't have been written. But if Newton never got hit by the apple, which probably didn't happen, we still would have figured out Newtonian physics. How does it work with the specific shapers of the internet from the era that you're writing about? Was the internet we have now somewhat inevitable, but was it, or was it very, very much shaped by the predilections and personalities of that group? You know, when when I sort of went back to really the part of the internet in the early aughts that was kind of before I got there that I'd grown up a little aware of and sort of had my face pressed to the glass looking in on, really what I found was that these guys, mostly guys, not all, who were really thought that they were shaping it, for sure. That you know, they were they were doing these little experiments with weird things that would go viral, with printing things that nobody would have printed before. Um and thought that they, I think, had mastered, in some sense, this new force, that they could make a kind of viral culture-jamming prank, like a Nike sneaker with the word sweatshop on it, and make it travel all over. You know, Or that they could take the conversations, and this is what was, Gawker was doing, that reporters were having with each other in bars, and print them on the internet, and, and, and sort of... And, and, light up all you know the kind of new york media world to begin with of people who couldn't believe that they would say that out loud and that these to some degree were kind of new tools that they controlled i mean i think what they found as time went on was that that they that they very quickly lost control of these tools and in some sense what we knew as so the social media of the last five or ten years swallowed everything else yeah and that was presaged by, I, I think, the main character in your book, other than yourself. I mean, you don't show up until page, what, 150, using, using the I uh, pronoun, Jonah Peretti. Yeah, I'd say I'm a, I'm a supporting character. Here. Yeah, you show up, uh, you take a meeting in Laura Fish Bar and scarf down uh, a lobster roll. But there you are, across from Jonah Peretti, who is a, a, an intriguing figure, the genius behind BuzzFeed, early Huffington Post uh, not, if not co-founder, then a voice and guiding light behind that. But Peretti, and you talk about his personality and how it was shaped, the key insight was that he didn't focus on what the content was. He focused on the psychology of seeking out the content. Um, could he help that? Or was that a decision he just uh, lit upon after really studying the, the question, the puzzle? You know, he was sort of a prankster, really, in college and in, in his early life, who, who really, I think, just discovered that this new network called the Internet allowed certain jokes, first of all, 
to travel in a new way. And, and that, that way was based totally on the psychology of the people sharing them. And, and, I, and what, he, what he thought about was, you know, was not, you know, is this content good, but how will people use it? How will people share it? He liked to give a talk that kind of sh would sometimes shock his audience. And he would ask, you know, which do you think is better, the Torah or the Book of Mormon? And, 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 you know, which kind of always made people uncomfortable. And then he'd be like, well, look, obviously the Book of Mormon is better. Look, look how much faster the Mormon faith is growing. And, you know, nobody really buys that. But and then he'd say, well, what's the answer? It's distribution. And so he thought a lot about distribution, about proselytizing. Yeah, it is true. LDS is sort of the buzzfeed of religion. I'll give him that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not comment on that. <laughs> I'll leave that with you. <laughs> Smart. Yeah. <laughs> Especially as uh, the guy who hired McKay Coppins to infiltrate the Romney campaign. You understand how these things work. But sorry, I did interrupt. But back to Peretti. Was he amoral? He's not. I mean, he had deeply held morals. He just didn't, what, marry them to the content of what he was producing? You know, I think he believed, and I think a lot of people believe, that the internet was just in its nature a kind of progressive, anti-establishment place. And... Sort of, you know, and I think that meant that there were often strange bedfellows. Andrew Breitbart and Ariana Huffington were his partners in the founding in HuffPost. And that kind of made sense to everybody at the time because, you know, Breitbart may have been a right winger. They may have been left wingers. But fundamentally, it was almost beyond politics to be on the Internet, to be attacking the kind of stuffy establishment institutions with, with outsider voices. And I think that for particularly for progressives, there was just a sense that the Internet was inevitably, partly because the people on the Internet were so young. A, a place for progressive politics. I don't think actually anybody really gave it much thought, and it seemed totally natural that Barack Obama wrote a wave of, of online support and visited Facebook to really kind of in some ways thank them for their centrality to this new progressive politics. If the internet weren't started in rebellion, and I'll asterisk that because probably every form of communication does, but like the Torah, once something gets a uh, millennium head start, we forget that, say, newspapering in America was just a function of supporting Adams or Jefferson or the crown even before that. Fine. But once a medium gets started in rebellion, this medium, the consequence and what we see now seems inevitable and inevitably part of that rebellious spirit. I, I just wonder, could it have in any way been otherwise? You know, that is a really good question. I think the experience of everybody who was working on the internet and kind of thought they were building this exciting, fun, new thing in the early aughts, when you get to 2010, 2012, 2016, is the sense of sort of a runaway train. That, you know, that, that the, that, that, you know, the tools and the sort of ideas that they had been playing with in a kind of contained environment were suddenly, you know, destabilizing the country and the world. And I think, you know, by the way, for some people on the, on this new right, that was this incredibly exciting thing that they, they that people like Steve Bannon um, and Breitbart and others who, again, were, were around from the start in what I think is often seen as this very progressive early internet era. You know, they, they saw these tools and said, wow, we can, you know, we can attack the established Republican Party. We, we can attack the mainstream media. We can kind of unleash these forces around particularly race and immigration that the established Republican Party had tried to keep under wraps. Do you think Ariana Huffington, who the HuffPost was really important, was would she be now pleased at the forces she loosed? I mean, she wanted to, like Breitbart, be a disruptor, but 
looking back, I don't know when the last time you talked to her, is she happy with the Pandora's box that she presided over? You know, I don't know, and I haven't asked her that. I would say that she is now running a company that, that specializes in helping people sleep more. <laughs> so let's draw from that what you will. No, but you're right. I mean, obviously, Breitbart wanted to destabilize, and Bannon wanted to destabilize, and Drudge, I think, wanted to destabilize. But then you had the people more on the left, or just, you know, maybe merry pranksters in the middle, who would have endorsed the idea of things being shaken up. But if you asked some of them, like maybe you, Jonah, Peretti, Ariana Huffington, Anna Holmes, all right, you wanted things to be shaken up. Are you happy with how much they were shaken up? And do you bear any blame or responsibility for that? You know, they're different people. They'd have different answers. You can answer for yourself, but you also reported this book and you have a sense of what they think. What do they think? You know, I think a lot of the people who worked in that era feel really ambivalent about it. I mean, Anna Holmes, who you mentioned, is a great example. She's this brilliant editor who created Jezebel, which was you know, this new feminist blog in 2007. And it's hard to kind of almost explain now how explosive and kind of riveting to its audience Jezebel was. And among other things, it had this comment section where the readers were obsessed with the writers to and arguing with them and treating them as a kind of celebrity and in some ways trolling and harassing them in a way that, you know, you sort of, it's it's sort of, you look back at the internet and a lot of essentially what's worst about Twitter now um, you see in this kind of explosion of energy around Jezebel, which was also, by the way, this is kind of incredible progressive force that really did, you know, crack open um, the women's magazines to younger voices, to more diverse voices that, you know, pointed out relentlessly that there were no black women in these women's magazines until they were shamed into diversifying their, um, their models. I mean, you just sort of saw just, you know, in these moments in time that, that the you know young journalists really although i don't even think that anybody would have called themselves journalists bloggers um it had an enormous impact on shaping the media as we know it now yes there is a line in your book what uh, writing specifically about jezebel but it probably could stand for a lot of the uh, publications you were talking about but it does specifically talk about jezebel what do you call this journalism activism in retrospect it was a new kind of cultural politics that would reshape america when social media really came of age if you squint at 2007 jezebel you can see 2020's twitter more clearly than anywhere else on the internet of that era I would say that most people have come to rue 2020's Twitter, you know? Everyone has at least some problem with it, and sometimes the problems are mutually exclusive or at loggerheads. But, I, you know, to me, it sparks just the bigger question of when you get the revolution that you asked for, how happy are you with it? And uh, I wonder, sometimes these things are out of your control and you had good intentions and there's unintended consequence. But I wonder what the cast of characters, you know, uh, the, the gawker people and Jonah Peretti think about this now. You know, I think most people basically feel like it's not their fault. I, th I think yeah. when you talk to anybody who was around, a, you know, a big disaster, probably including me, one of the things they'll say is that, you know, there were these big forces beyond their control. And I think that's largely true when you look back that the, you know, sort of the Internet turning into this mass medium where everybody was publishing and everyone was yelling at the same time into the same places was always going to pose this massive threat to institutions and it did all over the world um 
But I certainly think that we all failed to understand what was happening while it was happening. What if the founding ethos of the internet were more staid? What if the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or some big player had the insight and foresight to say, we're going to get in there and these are, the values of this new medium is going to be like the values of the old medium? Could things, it seems impossible, but you know, it's not. Could things have been different? I mean, you know, less staid competitors might have beaten them, as they in fact did. Although I think there are some kind of interesting counterfactuals on that. Germany didn't, just for what, you know, for whatever reason, Germans did not get into social media the way most people around the world did. Not that they didn't at all, but just Facebook usage was lower, things like that. And their publications also, for whatever reason, never went free and, and, and were much more aggressive about kind of keeping their communities behind their paywalls. I mean, I, you know, I, is that why Angela Merkel presided over this long period of basically quite stable politics and the far right never really totally took off and took the place over? I don't know. I mean, you know, there's journalists are always looking for the single explanation, um, you know, for some complex historical fact. But I think I think there but I think certainly these things are related. The milieu that you're writing about was very New York. And are there major players who maybe you who weren't exactly in this, uh, the Venn diagram of the people starting the internet at that time, who are out of the book, but you would acknowledge are extremely important in shaping the uh, the culture of the internet we know today? Oh, yeah. I mean, the nature of, of, of doing this kind of project is you really have to pick and choose and, and find, you know, kind of great characters who can care, who will carry this story through. So that meant that, I let, you know, all sorts of people are sort of on the margins of it. Probably the most important being Mark Zuckerberg, you know, who's in there a bit. And then I think we have, have some, I think, previously unreported, um, you know, interactions between him and him and these media figures. But, um, you know, the, the founders of Twitter, um, the whole, there was this whole thing called Yahoo that you may recall that was a big deal for a while. And then, you know, there were also other very important kind of new media players at Vox and at Vice that, I, that are in the book, but I didn't really focus centrally on. When did it become journalism? Because I read that quote about, was it journalism? Was it activism? When you were presiding, when you were the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, there was a time when it definitely was journalism. So when was the threshold crossed? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think it's pretty hard to 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 define journalism. My first editor hated the word and always told me that what a journalist is a word for an out of work newspaper man. Um, the um, I, but but I think that certainly the first people doing it were just sort of deliberately, defiantly opposed to the the kind of staid traditions of journalism, and and the idea of doing quote unquote journalism on the internet just almost felt like a contradiction in terms. And yeah, pro probably it was, I think actually Politico among and, and The Verge were among the first in the kind of mid-aughts to say, hey, wait, there's these tools, blogs for publishing words on the internet. And most of these words are just pe are people's opinions and analysis and experiences, but there's no reason you couldn't, you know, call sources and write what they said and put it in quotes and do reporting with those tools. And to me, that that's sort of a strain of online journal of, of, of I think what we think of as online journalism, which is basically taking the tools of blogging and the kind of methods of traditional reporting. But but I don't think you know the, the I, I find the fights over who is a journalist kind of tiresome. Right, but when you were a when you published the Steele dossier at that point, that was journalism. You were a journalism outlet, and we could you know talk about the wisdom of that or not. A couple years before, when you were vying for, and you can remind me of the timeline of I think winning Pulitzers, certainly uh, finalists, you were journalism. When did that happen? 
I mean, I actually, when I was at BuzzFeed, really like fought for a while the notion that there was this hard line to draw between, you know, silly lists and quizzes and super serious reporting. Because one of the definitions of journalism that I think journalists hew to is that it just has to be extremely boring and no one should want to read it or engage with it in any way. And when I came to BuzzFeed, it was like, wow, we have this really fun, interesting, engaging way of telling stories. Let's apply that to true stories and to, and to reporting rather than let's kind of make sure we can take the most boring conventions of news media and the most dishonest ones and move them whole cloth to the Internet. Because I think I mean, I think there's always there's a sort of golden age obsession in media. And there's always sort of people always want to look back to back when things were great, but things were never that great. Okay, so are you telling me that as the founder of Semaphore, which seeks to become uh, a respected, successful, important journalistic product, and I'll compliment you, is on its way to doing so, you don't get in front of potential funders or anyone else you're pitching yourself to and have a definition of journalism? You just punt on that and do the quote where you say, oh, it's a uh, newspaper man trying to gussy up his resume? You know, I, I just think that the de- the arguments over the, over the definition are a little tiresome. I mean, and what we're trying to do at Semaphore is actually is also to you know change the forms. I mean, I think that what I object to is the notion that a 20th century news- newspaper article, in which you have a sort of set of assertions, some of which which are factual, some of which are the reporter's views, some of which are the publication's party line, and you mix them all together and you don't tell the reader which is which. That that is like the highest possible form of truth telling and the only thing that, and and what should be in what is called journalism with a capital J is the thing that looks most like the Cleveland Plain Dealer in 1984. Um, I think that I think that the goal is to tell people what's going on, you know, as effectively and transparently as you can. Um, and so we're trying to do that. Ben Smith is the founder of Semaphore, not spelled how you might think, and he is the author of Traffic, Genius Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ben, thanks so much. Thank you. Traffic spelled spelled exactly as you would think. Yes, Traffic without the K, <laughs> unlike that weird movie without a, a steady plot line. Thanks, Ben. Thank thanks you. So thanks much. for having me, Mike. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And now, the spiel. A mentally ill man and sometime Michael Jackson impersonator, Jordan Neely, was shouting and berating passengers on an F train on Wednesday, throwing garbage at them too, reportedly. He was placed in a chokehold by a fellow passenger, later identified as a 24-year-old former sergeant in the Marines. After being restrained in the hold for over two minutes, maybe a lot more, that's the amount of tape that we have, the amount of phone video that we have, Neely died. 
The Manhattan DA is considering the evidence, as he should, but when New York Governor Kathy Hochul was asked about the homicide, as it has been officially ruled, she was quoted in the Daily News as saying, there, quote, are homeless in our subways, many of them in the throes of mental health episodes. She also said, quote, there's consequences for behavior. Wait, was she blaming Neely, the dead man, or was she saying there are legal consequences for choking a fellow passenger to death, even if that passenger was behaving aggressively? It's unclear. Hochul still has not clarified, but here's a hint. Her comments were to reporters after a bill signing where the emphasis was passing a budget and rolling back some bail reform. The tone of the press conference was a bit on the raucous side, for a government meeting its own statutory obligations. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, Brooklyn DA Eric Gonzalez, Queens DA Melinda Katz, and now please welcome Tony Jordan, President, District Attorney's Association of New York. During the event, a tough on crime message was emphasized. Hochul spoke about bail reform, New York City Mayor Eric Adams spoke about crime. And spending countless number of days with parents who had to deal with the loss of their loved ones and seeing bullets carve highways of death through our communities, not only destroying the physical body that it hits, but the anatomies of the communities that people exist in. Afterwards, Hochul gave brief comments one by one to TV reporters. Here was one of those comments made to WNBC. No, that was deeply disturbing, and that causes a lot of fear in people. And actually, the mayor and I are working so hard to restore that sense of safety. Hochul had a much closer re-election contest than she'd had hoped, and New Yorkers' fear of crime was the biggest reason why. She senses her own vulnerability on that issue. That is why she is so clearly on message in the comments you heard about consequences on message for the hyped-up bill signing, but tone-deaf when it comes to the specific case of a mentally ill homeless man. I do not know what she meant by consequences, and I hope that she clarifies. Anyway, it is very much up to the DA now. He is Alvin Bragg. Perhaps you've heard about him. And this case can become one of those flashpoint moments, a New York City moment. I think of the Bernie Getz, the subway vigilante case, but I think of so many other recent cases that have either symbolized a city out of control or a city too cruel to care for its most vulnerable. AOC and other progressive elected officials have begun to call what happened murder. Julia Salazar called it a lynching. Adrian Adams, the city council speaker, said Neely's killing put, quote, on display for the world the double standards that black people and other people of color continue to face, adding, quote, the perceptions of black people have long been interpreted through a distorted racialized lens that aims to justify violence against us. Neely was black. The 24-year-old former Marine is white, appears to be white. Another passenger who was restraining Neely and leaning on his body during the duration of the chokehold is black. There were two women who were looking on the whole time. One is white, the other is black. I mean, that's what their appearance seems to indicate. The man who taped the most widely disseminated video of the incident is Latino. He said Neely was acting aggressively beforehand, making passengers feel threatened, but he also added in Spanish that other passengers didn't think Neely was going to die. Otherwise, they would have intervened to get the 24-year-old to let Neely go. 
There really are no easy answers on this one, and I am sorry to retreat into the distance with that cliche. But you know, if elected officials would take a page from the playbook of boring prudence, they would lower, not raise the temperature in the wake of tragedy. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. He's the producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. She's already been mentioned once in this show. You get the context. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>